Welcome to the teaching ministry at Carthus Creek Community Church. Well, good morning, church. <clears throat> well, I'm going to break one of the cardinal rules um, of uh, preaching that they teach you in preaching course. They say, you know, whatever you do, <clears throat> anytime that you're preaching, don't ever get up there with a candy in your mouth because, you know, it's kind of distracting and stuff. <clears throat> I have a candy in my mouth. My throat is so raw this morning that, that, I'm, that I'm sucking on a halls while we're doing it. So I hope it's not a distraction for you. And, um, and I'm, I'm just going to be kind of low and hoarse with my voice. It's a whole new image, actually, that I'm, that I'm working on. So <clears throat> it'll, I'll sound taller on the podcast, uh, which is one of the things that I'd love to have happen. <clears throat> Well, we're in this uh, great series that we've been going through in the book of Romans, and, um, you know, today I have the privilege of talking to us about Romans chapter 11 and what Romans chapter 11 uh, can say to us. And, you know, right at the start, I need to say Romans chapter 11 is an incredibly difficult passage of Scripture. Um, It's a passage of Scripture that has been the source of great controversy uh, throughout the years, and so, Lord willing, I'm going to try and and lend my voice, uh, not to the controversy, but to what the Scripture actually has to say to us and and how we can apply this particular Scripture to our lives as we seek to live out as Christ followers. You know, it's always helpful for me, personally, I always like to know where I'm going. I always like to have kind of the perspective, uh, you know, just really clear for me because sometimes I get a little lost in my thinking. And so I know I did this last week, but I want to do it again. Let me just give you the outline of the book of Romans and really how Romans is structured because if we ever kind of lose sight of where we're going in the, in the, in the entire book, th- then we'll get lost in some of the details and we'll start interpreting some stuff maybe in a way that's not really healthy at all. In the first eight chapters of the book of Romans, uh, the Apostle Paul is really laying out a theology of salvation. I love some of the opening verses in Romans chapter 1. In in Romans chapter 1 and verse 16, you know, the Apostle Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for those who believe, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. And what Paul does in Romans chapter 1 through 8 is he lays out this great theology of, of salvation. What on earth has God been up to in human history? What does salvation look like? What, what was God's plan in, in offering salvation to people? What, what, was, what was God really up to and what was he all about? And then in Romans 9 through 11, <clears throat> it's like Paul puts some parentheses around his writing for a minute. And in chapters 9, 10, and 11, he, he particularly focuses in his attention on nation Israel. And he says, look, there's some things about nation Israel that we just really need to understand. And I need to take a little bit of a time out, Paul says. And I need to specifically address Israel and Israel in salvation so that, so that we really get a picture of what God is up to. And then after he does Romans 9, 10, and 11, he then moves on to chapter 12. And in chapter 12, he begins this whole section that he's going to begin in chapter 12 all the way through to chapter 16 on practical application. Okay, so Paul, we've learned about Israel and and, and God's kind of special dealing with Israel. We've learned about a theology of salvation. So so what's the point? What's the application? What what can I do in my everyday life? And in chapters 12 through 16, Paul actually addresses that. And he begins chapter 12 with those words, right? Therefore, in, in view of God's mercies then we're to do this. We're to present our bodies as living sacrifices. And through 12 through 16, Paul begins to, to, to get really practical in his application of how we're to live out in light of this great salvation that we've been given. So what we've been doing over these last uh, four weeks, we had, a, we had a skipped weekend there when Tony Campolo was with us, but Pastor John started in Romans chapter 9, and last week I talked about Romans 10, and, and today I want to talk about Romans 11, which is this special dealing 
with nation Israel. And in Romans 9, 10, and 11, again, we have to be really clear on what Paul is trying to get across and what Paul is trying to understand. When it comes to Romans chapter 9, he's looking at Israel's past, and he's specifically talking about their past. In Romans chapter 10, he's talking about Israel in the present day when Paul was actually writing. And then in Romans chapter 11, our text for today, he's really more interested in the future of, of uh, nation Israel and what's the future going to hold for nation Israel. If I had to say, look, what's the big idea in Romans chapter 9? The, the big idea in Romans 9 is really all about selection. God has chosen, God has elected and chosen a people for himself. The big idea, as we saw last week in uh, Romans chapter 10, is the whole idea of rejection. Nation Israel, in in particular, has rejected God, and God has set them aside. He has set them apart for a season because God wants to accomplish some other things. We'll learn more about that today. But Nation Israel, specifically, has been kind of set aside and has rejected God for a period of time. And as we'll see today, it's really going to be about the restoration of Nation Israel. That's what the focus or the big idea is on. The focus in Romans chapter 9 is really on God's sovereignty, That's what we appeal to. That's what we look at. We see the sovereignty of God in his interaction and in his choice in human history. Last week, we talked about God's fairness and how God deals with people, people who have human choice, people um, who, who make decisions all the time in their relationship with God and whether they accept uh, the, the message of salvation or not. And God deals with people with tremendous fairness. And what we're going to see today is that God is absolutely faithful. We're going to appeal today to the faithfulness of God. And then the doctrine or theology that we talked about last week was all about election. Or sorry, uh, four weeks ago was about election. Last week, the doctrine that we looked at was human responsibility. And this week, the doctrine that we're going to be paying particular attention to is eschatology, which is just uh, the word that theologians use to talk about future things. What is God's future dealing with Israel? What does it look like, and and, and what's it really going to be like? So that's the overview, the high-level view of the book of Romans, and then particularly these these parenthetical chapters, Romans 9, 10, and 11. And so this morning, we find ourselves in Romans chapter 11, where the Apostle Paul focuses in on God's future dealings with nation Israel. Paul wants to talk about Israel's future and the restoration that God is going to bring about with his people. Now, last week I said we we saw that the Jews had rejected Christ on a national level. When when it came to the entire nation, the entire nation had not embraced Jesus as their Messiah. In chapter 11, Paul wants to talk about how God is not done with his people. To use a a boxing metaphor, uh, they're, they're, they're down, but they're not out yet. It's like nation Israel has been given a kind of a standing eight count, if you're familiar at all with the boxing metaphor. God has a heart and a plan to restore the nation to himself at some date in the future. Now, now some people in Paul's day, I'm sure, raised the question, and I'm sure some people would have said, look, I, I see the national rejection of Christ. So how do you know, Paul? How can you be absolutely sure, Paul, that God hasn't just given up on nation Israel? And there would, there would be people today who would also hold that same viewpoint. They'd say, look, Israel as a nation, as, as an entire people group, they rejected Jesus as their Messiah. So God's absolutely done with them. God doesn't want to have anything to do with Israel anymore. Well, I would say that Paul says that that's absolutely not true. We're going to look at Romans chapter 11 and verse 1 in just a second. 
Paul offers some proofs that God hasn't given up on Israel completely and that their rejection of Christ is only partial. It's not complete. It's only temporary. It's not forever. Paul points to something that, that is woven throughout Scripture as a proof that God is not done with nation Israel. And that proof that he brings out is the believing remnant in the first 10 verses of Romans chapter 11. Paul wants to show that while Israel has rejected Christ on a national level, there are some Jews who have trusted in Jesus as their Messiah. And this is proof that God is not done yet with nation Israel. Paul points to himself as an example, first of all. And in Romans chapter 11, verse 1, he says this. I ask then, did God reject his people? By no means. Let Let me just pause there for a second halfway through the verse. What Paul is saying here is, has God completely abandoned the Jews? And then Paul gives an answer right away. He doesn't even wait for an answer. He says, by no means. And you need to know that the language that Paul uses here in the original language, in the Greek that this was written in, is the strongest possible negative that Paul can give. It's kind of like, no way, Jose. Absolutely not. Like, definitely not. Not a chance. Not a hope is what Paul is saying here. Has God finished with nation Israel? By no means. And then he offers himself as a proof. He says, I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. Paul himself is proof that God is not done with the Jewish people. You remember the Apostle Paul, how he was zealous for the law of God, zealous to the point that he persecuted Christians, those who professed the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. But God didn't reject him. God didn't reject the Apostle Paul. If God had given up on Israel, he wouldn't have included Paul in his plan for salvation. And Paul offers himself as the first proof that God is not done yet with nation Israel, that God is still interested in the Jewish people and still reaching out to them. Paul says, even in the past, God didn't completely reject his people. And he, he, he goes in verses two through four and he points to, to a story back in the Old Testament, specifically with the prophet Elijah. Look at verses two through four of Romans 11. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. Don't you know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah? How he appealed to God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I'm the only one left, and they're trying to kill me. And what was God's answer to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. The doctrine of the remnant, a faithful group of people, has been woven throughout Scripture. And in verses 2 through 4, Paul reminds his readers of the story from 1 Kings chapter 18 and 19. It's a great story. You need to read it for yourself. In 1 Kings chapter 18, you have this confrontation that is set up by the prophet Elijah on Mount Carmel with, the, with all of the followers of Baal. And, and, and he sets up a sacrificial system. And they're invited to call down and to pray from Baal for fire to fall from heaven uh, to consume the offering. And so they go about this ritual all day long and it re- reaches a feverish pitch 
but, but nothing ever happens. And then Elijah steps in at the last, and he says, okay, look, I'm done with you guys. And he says, I'm going to show you who the true God is. And he says, God, the God of fire, you know, send down your fire to show these people. And fire falls from heaven, consumes the water, consumes the offering, consumes everything. And so quite literally and figuratively and spiritually, Elijah is on this mountaintop experience. Then we get to 1 Kings chapter 19, and what happens is Queen Jezebel says, I don't like this Elijah guy. I want him dead. He's like, he's shown up Baal, and, and I'm a Baal worshiper, so I'd like the guy dead. And so Elijah flees, and he's off, and he's having a pity party, and he's sitting under a tree, and he's crying out to God, and he's saying, look at your people, God, look at your people. When are you, you going to stop dealing with these people because they're obstinate towards you, God? I am the only one left. Sound familiar? And God says, I've reserved for myself 7,000 that you don't even know about, who have never bowed the knee to Baal. The, the doctrine of the remnant is woven throughout Scripture. And Paul points to the doctrine of, of the remnant, and he, and he points to this episode with Elijah to say to the people of his day, God has always reserved a faithful bunch for himself. There are people who have not given up on God, who have not rejected God, and it's a proof that God has not rejected Israel, that God is still working in nation Israel because there are those who believe. And even in Paul's present day, there is still a believing remnant. Paul talks about that in verses five through six. He says, so too, at the present time, there's a remnant chosen by grace. And if by grace, then it is no longer by works. And if it were, grace would no longer be grace. Paul moves right into the present time. Even in Paul's time, he's saying, look, there's a faithful remnant. Not a bunch of people who are zealous about the law because Paul's already taken eight chapters to say that salvation is not based on the law. Salvation is based on grace, on God's wonderful offering to people. And Paul is saying that even in his day, there's a whole bunch of people who have accepted Jesus Christ by grace. They have believed in their heart that God raised him from the dead, and they have confessed with their lips that Jesus is Lord. That's Romans chapter 10 and verse 9. And Paul is saying, even in my day, there is a righteous remnant there are people who are Christ followers. There are Jews who are following the Lord Jesus Christ as the Messiah. And God is not done with the nation Israel. So is God finished with Israel? Not at all, Paul says. Absolutely not. While they have not acknowledged Jesus on a national level, God has saved some to show himself faithful to the promises that he has made to his people. So Paul anticipating what people might want to be asking at this point in time, he goes on now in the next group of verses, in, in verses 7 through 25, I think to talk about, well, so what is the purpose then in Israel's rejection of Jesus? Like, what on earth could, could God bring about? What good could God actually do while nation Israel has been set aside for a period of time? What is the purpose of Israel's rejection and Paul offers some helpful insights as to why God, in his sovereignty, has allowed Israel to go through a season of rejection, why they have been temporarily set aside for a season, and why God is using that. I think the first one that he points to is this in verses 7 through 10, is that God is allowing this season to discipline nation Israel. Look at Paul says in verses 7 through 10, what then? 
What Israel sought so earnestly, it did not obtain, but the elect did. The others were hardened, as it is written. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes so that they could not see, and ears so that they could not hear, to this very day. And David says, may their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see, and their backs be bent over. What is Paul trying to get across here? Well, one of the purposes that God is working out in nation Israel during the rejection of Jesus is he is disciplining them. And Paul quotes here from three of the Old Testament authors, Moses, Isaiah, and David, to reinforce his argument that God has said throughout the Old Testament that he rewards faithfulness, but that he disciplines unfaithfulness. Israel, because of their rejection of Jesus as the Messiah on a national level, is under the Lord's loving, faithful discipline for a season. Now, there's a huge difference between discipline and punishment. The difference is subtle, and yet it's so profound. Punishment has to do with justice, and it is usually permanent and punitive when, when, when God deals with people. But discipline, on the other hand, is usually temporary and always constructive. And God's goal in discipline is to lovingly draw people back to himself. And the Apostle Paul is saying that Israel is rejecting God and is under the discipline of God in an effort to draw them back and to turn their hearts back towards God. So Israel is under discipline. But there's another purpose of Israel's rejection of Jesus as their Messiah. And Paul points this out in verses 11 through 15. And that purpose is to reach the Gentiles, to reach the non-Jews, to reach us, the majority of us who are here this morning. In verses 11 through 15, he says this. Again, I ask, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious But if their transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their fullness bring? I'm talking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch as I am the apostle to the Gentiles, I make much of my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Paul is saying here that God is using the temporary setting aside of nation Israel as an opportunity for non-Jews to come to faith. It's an opportunity for us. It's an opportunity for us to receive and to respond to the good news of Jesus Christ. And this has really always been God's plan, hasn't it been? Hasn't God's plan always been that all of the nations... You remember when God called Abraham way back in Genesis chapter 12 and Genesis chapter 15? He said, yes, I'm going to make you the father of a great nation and I'm going to bless you. But he said, I'm going to bless all of the nations, all of the nations through you. God has always been inclusive in his plan. But you see, the Israelite people, the Jewish nation, the recipients of the law and the recipients of God's special favor, they they got the blessing of God and they just hoarded it for themselves. See, they, they were always meant to strategically give away the blessing. They were always meant to represent God to all of the nations of the world, but they didn't do that. And even when Jesus came, they didn't accept Jesus. So God says, I am setting them aside. Their rejection means I will set them aside. I will put them under discipline so that I myself can now take the message to all of those that you were supposed to take the message to. 
It's like this. I, I remember when our kids were really little. <clears throat> our oldest son is James, and then our second son is Nick, and I'll use them uh, in this illustration because they don't go to this church. They live in other cities, so it's easy. <laughs> so there's only uh, like two years between them. And so when, when the guys were really little, when they were really small, you know, I, I would say to James, uh, I would say, hey, James, you know, come give dad a big hug and a big kiss. And he's a firstborn, so he got a little obstinate and said, no, I'm not doing it. You know, a kind of play thing. And I'd say, come on, please, come. Come give dad a big, huge hug and a big kiss. And he'd be like, no, no, I'm not doing it. Right? He wants to be persuaded more. So I did what most parents would do. I pick up Nicholas, number two kid. And I start hugging him, and I'm like, oh, Nikki, you're my favorite. Oh, Nikki, oh, those are great kisses. Mm-hmm. You know, like that stuff. What did James do? Little head was in there right away. Me too, Daddy, me too, right? That's what Paul is trying to get across here. That's what God's heart and God's plan is. God's firstborn, as it were, the Jewish people, have rejected him. And so God says, I'm turning now to the, to the Gentiles, and I'm offering the gospel to the Gentiles. And in the Gentiles responding, Paul says, God is hoping like crazy that it provokes the Jewish nation to jealousy. And that they return to God. That they come back to God. And that is one of the purposes in the setting aside temporarily of nation Israel. But there's a third one. It's a warning. And I see this warning in verses 16 through 25. It's a long section. If, if the part of the dough offered as first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. If the root is holy, so are the branches. If some of the branches have been broken off and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, do not boast over those branches. If you do, consider this. You do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. Granted. But they were broken off because of unbelief. And you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but be afraid. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Consider therefore the kindness and sternness of God. Sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And if they do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. After all, if you were cut out of an olive tree that is wild by nature and contrary to nature were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more readily will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. I think what Paul is doing here in these verses is he's giving us a warning. And it's a warning to us, Gentiles, predominantly. It's not a warning to nation Israel. It's for you and I to look at the fact, <clears throat> excuse me, that God has currently set aside nation Israel and has temporarily rejected them, and we are to take that to heart. I think we're to take the heart in a couple of ways. Paul starts, first of all, by, by telling us that we need to check our attitude. We need to check our attitude towards Israel, towards the Jewish people, towards the nation as a whole. 
The concept of the offering of first fruits is used to remind us that God chose all of Israel, that nation Israel is the chosen people of God. He is not done with them as a nation. He still wants to move in their history and among them as a people. Yes, there's a remnant at the current time, but the whole of the nation is who God longs for. So you and I as Gentile believers, you and I as non-Jews, as Christ followers who are not from a Jewish heritage, we must not become conceited. We must not become arrogant because we've come to know Jesus and they've rejected him. God has set them aside temporarily and because of their rejection, but his desire is to graft them back in again at some point in the future. That is God's heart. That is what God wants to do. Someday in the future, when all of the Gentile elect have responded to the gospel, to the good news of Jesus, God will again turn his special attention to the Jewish people, Paul says. I love how Chuck Swindoll summarizes this section of scripture. It's so helpful. Here's what Chuck says. Paul has acknowledged that the temporary setting aside of the Jews in God's redemptive plan was beneficial for the Gentiles. But that's not to say it's ideal. If God can use their disobedience to his advantage, how much greater benefit will their obedience be to the whole world? The Jews are like a member of the family who has been tragically killed in an accident. The surviving members can survive and even grow spiritually from the loss. But how wonderful if the deceased could be resurrected and returned to the household. Can you imagine the party the family would throw? And that's what Paul is really trying to get across here. There's a warning to us that God has temporarily rejected his people and we are to make sure that we have a good attitude as believers in Christ towards those who are of the Jewish heritage and of the Jewish nation. But I think Israel is also a warning to us to remind us of who we are and what God wants us to do. As I said a little earlier, it was always God's intended plan that nation Israel would be a light to all of the nations, that they would take the good news of the message of Jesus to all people and to spread that good news. And when they failed to do that, when they hogged and hoarded the blessing of God, God set them aside for a season. I think there's a tremendous warning for us. I think there's a tremendous warning for us as North American Christians. See, we, we live as a blessed people. We are among the wealthiest people in the world. We have one of the highest standards of living of any nation on earth. And that's okay. I'm not saying we should be ashamed of that. But if God has blessed us that way, he has blessed us for a purpose. And that purpose is to share the blessing with other people. That's why God has blessed us. And Israel is a warning to us. Israel failed on this. They saw that they were blessed and they hoarded the blessings of God. And when they hoarded the blessings of God, they, they fell under the discipline of God. And in that way, they are a reminder to us. So Paul ends this whole section on an up note as he draws this Romans 9, 10, and 11 to a close. Paul says when it comes to Israel, there is the promise of restoration in the final verses, verses 26 through 32. Now, on what basis? Like, how can you be sure, Paul? How do you know that Israel, you know, isn't, 
isn't out for the count? How do you know that they haven't been cut off forever? Well, Paul says, first of all, that God is faithful to his promises. God is always faithful to his promises. Look at verses 26 through 29. And so all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come out, come, come out from Zion. He will turn uh, godliness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies on your account. But as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs. For God's gift and his call are irrevocable. All Israel means those who are to be saved. The elect, those who will respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Just as all Gentiles doesn't mean every non-Jew, but only those who have believed and confessed Jesus as Lord. Those who are the elect. And Paul quotes here from Isaiah chapter 59 and says that God has yet to fulfill some promises that he made to Israel. Look through the Old Testament. Is God done with nation Israel? No. There are many, many promises throughout the Old Testament that have yet to be fulfilled when it comes to nation Israel. And Paul is saying that God is faithful to his promises and he will yet again deal with nation Israel. You can trust God when he makes a promise that he always, always keeps his promise. Paul affirms that God will be faithful to his promises to his people. But I think Paul also says that God is faithful to his generosity in verses 30 and 32. Just as you who were at one time disobedient to God have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience, so they too have now become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. For God has bound all men over to disobedience so that they may have mercy on them all. Interesting three little verses. The word mercy is used four times in these three verses. I think we should take note of that. These verses are full of emotion as Paul builds to the climax of this whole section. God has extended his generosity towards us. See, we Gentiles were disobedient, and we have received mercy. The Jews became disobedient, and so they too will receive mercy one day. God has extended his great mercy and his generosity, Paul is saying, to all people by offering us amazing grace. Amazing grace. The mercy of God extended to all people, totally undeserved, because we have all become disobedient. But we have become disobedient so that we might understand and see the full measure of God's grace and his mercy. And then finally in this section, we move from theology to doxology. I I, I love this. Paul now, through chapters 1 through 8, has been weaving a theology of salvation. Then he says, look, I need to turn special attention to nation Israel. So for 9, 10, and 11 up to this point in time, he's been focusing in, again, with some pretty heady stuff, I think. And and our English language kind of just doesn't do it. Because here's how you and I read this. Romans chapter 11, verses 33 to 36. Here's how we read it. Oh, the depths of the riches of his wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him 
are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. That's not how Paul wrote it. It's not how Paul wrote it. Paul wrote it a little bit like this, if you bear with me. Oh, the depths. Like, you know when you think about the sea, and, and in Paul's day, everybody was kind of afraid of the sea. You know how deep the sea is? Oh, the depths. The unmeasurable depths of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable. Like, if you were to try and search them out, if you were to look for the rest of your life, you'd never uncover all of it. So how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing. He uses a hunting term there. And he says, even if you were to try and track God, you can't fully track God. God, you know, his paths are too numerous. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Like, who has really understood the things of God that I've tried to explain to you in all of these 11 chapters? Who can fathom this stuff? Or who has been God's counselor? Who is the one that has given God input? Who is the one who has instructed God in the things, in the affairs of his dealing with people? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? Hey, Romans, hey, C4, who has ever given so much to God that God now owes you? For from him and through him and to him are all things. He is the sustainer of all things. He holds everything together. He is God and we are not. And to him be the glory forever and ever and ever. Amen. Amen. See, in these verses, Paul just explodes in worship and praise using the best language that he can find to describe and explain what God has done in the course of human history. So Paul ends this section rightly with God. God is the source of all things. God sustains all things. He gives all things. He brings purpose into all things. And the glory of God is the purpose for which all things and all people exist. So Romans 9, 10, 11 are difficult, granted. They leave us with questions. There's so much more we'd love to know. But why not just break into worship? Why not just respond with unhindered thanksgiving to the God who knows us, who has provided salvation for us, and who sustains all things by his mighty word. Why not trust him and leave the future up to him? Why not trust by faith that for you, for you, all things are from and through and to him for his glory? So what? So what, Dave? So what do I take away? Well, let me just really quickly say this. For those who are seekers here this morning, you haven't crossed that line of faith yet. You're, you're still searching. You're still kind of inquiring about God. Could I encourage you with what I think the Scripture says, and that is this? God's not done with you yet. And God has not given up on you. He understands your questions he understands your hurts. He understands everything that you have gone through. He understands your highs and he understands your lows. He understands your joys and he understands your pain. But God is not finished with you yet. 
please don't give up. Please do not give up. For those of us who have crossed that line of faith, who would call ourselves followers of Jesus, can I remind you that God is faithful. He can't not be faithful. It is against his nature. Has God made some promises to you? Are there some things that you're still waiting on from God? God is always faithful. God is always faithful. But God is also always generous. And please, please, when I say generous, don't don't just hear money. I'm not primarily talking about money. I'm talking about the richness of blessing that God pours out on us. Why? Because he has given us salvation. Salvation. Our sins forgiven, our future secured, and the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit to work in and through us now and until the day we die and we meet him face to face. God is generous towards us as people. Because of God's faithfulness and because of God's generosity, I think we, more than any people on the face of the planet, should be the party people of the world. I really do. I think we should just be partying all the time. I know we go through some tough stuff, and, I, and I'm, I'm not trying to minimize it. Some of you here this morning are hurting. Please, I understand that. But God has given us so much. And even in the midst of our tough times and our tough circumstances, God has promised that he will meet us in those. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. <coughs> well, Lord, thank you for Romans as a whole book, and, and I'm just looking forward to hearing what Pastor John has for us next week as we now turn to this practical application of how to live our lives in light of all you've done for us. Lord, um, for those who are here this morning and who are, uh, who are truly seeking I pray, Lord, that they, would f- that they would know that you're right there and they would find you even this morning. Continue to reveal yourself. And for those of us who have crossed the line of faith, God, help us never to forget just how blessed we are as a people. Thank you for being faithful even when I'm not faithful, even when, you're not, when we're not faithful. Thank you for your generosity that is, um, that is always before us. Help us to respond to that generosity and that faithfulness in appropriate ways to you. And we will give you praise and thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us. For more teaching, info, or to give financially, please visit us at our website, crotherscreek.ca.